to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may keep the words of this law, Deuteronomy 29, 29. We are to study the world God made, Psalm 111, 2. 111, 2. We are to study his word, Psalm 119, 11. We are to consider his works ad intra only when we are given plain revelation concerning it, John 17, 24. And provided we take our shoes off first in deep humility, Exodus 3, 5. But if we, without scriptural warrant, start disputing about how God thinks about things when he is all by himself, we have crossed some pretty serious lines. Not only so, but we have neglected to consider how many troubles in the theological world are created by smart people. They really ought to stop it. Now, this is, I think, a key, a, a fundamental issue that, that Wilson has. Notice the language that he uses. Uh, he says, we are to consider his works ad intra only when we are given plain revelation concerning it. This is uh, interesting because we as Reformed people believe in good and necessary consequence or necessarily contained. He's saying that we can only make assertions about God based on what's plainly given in the scriptures, yet we make a distinction between what is plainly or expressly set down and what is necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures. So I think this is showing really what is the hermeneutical framework that he is coming from and why he has issues with uh, things like divine immobility. Well, if you believe that you only have what is plainly laid down in Scripture as the warrant for why you believe something or you should believe something, and of course you're going to uh, reject divine immobility uh, because that's not plainly laid down in the Scriptures in a way that you well, would. I would even argue that it is when it says uh, in God there is no shadow of turning. Um, that it is even that plain, but you know, yeah, 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 that's true. That's true. Uh, and also I'd like to dispute how much we're even asserting about God. Cause what we're mostly saying is how he's not like, right. So when it talks about how he thinks about things when he's all by himself, I don't know anyone on, I mean, maybe there's been somebody somewhere, but like we, we don't typically talk about it in that way. Like, Oh, God thinks in this way. What we say is he doesn't think this way in other words he doesn't think like creatures do he doesn't deliberate yep. like creatures do those things are unnecessary to him and would imply that he's contingent to them dependent on upon them in some way so we're saying not like creatures and that's basically all we're saying and when people start i mean the whole reason why we, we have this pushback is because there are people these people who i would call like trying to be too smart trying to describe positively how god thinks and making it like creatures it's like oh god takes on himself these covenantal properties and things like that we're like no 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 nothing similar to to creatures in in any way he's he's independent of them all there's this great gulf between creator and creature the lord says who will you compare me to right when he's asked who he is he says i am that i am not only is he identical with his own being, but you can't, he won't compare himself to any creature when you ask him who he is. He just is that he is, period. So stop putting creaturely things back onto them. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul uh, considers a trait of idolatry in Romans 1 is when they make the incorruptible God into the image of corruptible man. It's this projecting uh, these corruptible creaturely qualities back onto God. And notice it doesn't even just say corrupted man, but corruptible. In other words, capable of corruption, and which is essentially what you do when you start asserting um, 
him as being this composite nature that changes from one state to the other things. It's like, no, he's incorruptible, incapable of even corruption, not just morally, but in any other way possible. He do not project creaturely corruptible qualities back unto God. Paul describes that as uh, a fruit of idolatry, essentially. I'd like to also dispute his proof text here. Um, he he proof texts for we are to consider his works ad intra only when we are given plain revelation concerning it. He proof texts uh, John seventeen twenty four, and I'll, I'll quote from the ESV because that's what he has linked. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Like when I went to look at that, I was expecting to see a, a text that I thought was misapplied. I don't even understand what he's what he's trying to reference that proves his point there. Do you guys know what I mean? Like, I'm not even sure how that's supposed to prove his point. Yeah, it seems like, cause this is a, a text that does talk about God in the economy and at intra, I guess, to some extent, mm -hmm. maybe that's what he was trying to show. Here's a plain text about God's nature. And here's an example of why we can say this about Jesus. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's not very clear. It's kind of, it seems out of place a little bit. Yeah. 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 He, he, I think it's an example of a revelation about that ad intra stuff, but it certainly doesn't say, oh, therefore only talk about it if I tell you after this manner. In right. fact, <laughs> uh, in fact, Jesus rebukes the disciples for being so slow to realize that Christ is omniscient, even in the state of his incarnation. He's and like, he didn't say, I'm omniscient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, like, uh, Lord, now that we, he's like, now we know that you know all things. And he's like, did it take you this long to figure it out? <laughs> right. Well, he didn't say it in those plain words before, but he still rebukes them for not figuring it out. Like, you should have been able to figure it out from things that I've said. So that's an example of, like, his, one of his divine qualities and the like, that they should have just been able to infer by things that he's done. Like, you know, knowing, um, uh, like, there, there's there's tons of examples of him reading the hearts of men and and the like they he, they should have been able to figure this out yes this is this is god with us this is the the i am yep all right number seven seventh the empiricism of aristotle led him to believe that causation within god needed to operate in line with what we see in billiard ball physics but we have no reason for taking this leap together with thomas and it is a leap the temporal world does not readily map into the eternal world Thus, it is legitimate to apply Aristotle's laws of thought to God. Otherwise, a person could say that the Father is not the Father, for example. While it is not legitimate to apply time and space-bound assumptions to the eternal one, we don't say that God is subject to the law of gravity, for example, while we should be willing to say that the law of identity is an attribute of God. This goes back to what you mentioned earlier, uh, Andrew, that what we're trying to say is what God is not. And it's ironic that he says that you know God doesn't fall within these billiard ball physics i think he's talking about cause and effect um while utilizing human understandings of the divine when he's talking about you know frozen slabs of meat um it, it, he's applying the principle where it's convenient for him and then not using it in other places and it's frustrating because this is exactly what we're trying to do we're saying yes he's not bound by these time and space things these time and space properties um and and so we're only talking about logical necessities here right. or if he is these things, then it follows than that. And it's people on the other end who are applying explicitly time space assumptions like, Oh, it takes 
movement to do this or that back on the God. And we're saying, no, it doesn't. He's perfectly sufficient. He doesn't need anything that is not him to do what he does. That's what we're saying. Like, I don't even know why it's something that's so strongly contested. Like, are you saying, yeah, he, he can't do these things by himself. He needs to do these other things. Like his own being isn't sufficient enough. He needs all these extra acts, works, thoughts in order to do it. Where are you getting that from? Uh, the only thing you're getting that from is from your observation of the world. It's like, oh yeah, creaturely things need that. And it's like, and we're saying, no, God's not a creature. He's perfect. He's infinitely above us. It really shouldn't be a matter of dispute. No. I mean, I'll read, um, I had Psalm 102, 25, 27 here. It says, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your your, your years have no end. I mean, that, that distinction is so explicitly laid out in scripture. It, you, you can't get around it. Change happens for the creature only and god remains the same yet he's the one moving the creature to change um like in line with what you mentioned with athanasius so yeah we're saying we're, we're trying to keep this distinction between the creature and the creator with no point of contact between them we can't have it only by way of analogy can we truly know god um, but change and movement are only ascribed to the creature while immutability is ascribed to god it's very basic plainly in the text in multiple places you just you either have to be ignorant or willfully reject it i would just like to uh point out a little bit of the irony which you sort of alluded to there uh, andrew um he's denying that the temporal world readily maps on to the eternal and then is using that to defend the idea of motion in god which motion at least by our understanding looking looking around requires time um yeah. so it's 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 a subtle i don't i don't think he realizes he's doing it but he's mapping something temporal onto the divine yeah i, th I think he had a little bit of awareness of it because he in the next paragraph i know we're going to get to it in just a second like because then he he goes right away and talking about the necessity of motion for stuff like love and sending the sun and the like and then at the end of it he's like well you know yeah i know i just they, but, but we'll get to it we'll get to it he, he basically yeah, just... concedes that he's <laughs> that he's doing this a little bit but then he's like well you do have to do it a little bit <laughs> but we'll, but we'll, we'll right. go on Let, let's read him in context and then then go through it it's just it it will kind of be ironic given that he did this number seven first and the content that's in there and then he goes on to eight um but yeah. with eight it says eighth an a priori commitment to Thomism requires an immobile god and this collides with many plain statements of scripture as well as being out of conformity with the early creeds. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and love is not immobile. The Father sent the Son into the world, John 3, 17, 10, 36, and sending is not immobile. And when we look at Nicaea, for example, one of the things we should notice would be the verbs. Within the Godhead, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, in line with an earlier point, we must confess that our understanding of begetting or proceeding in the temporal world do not map exactly to what is happening in the Godhead. But we do know enough to say that begetting cannot be understood as something that is nothing at all like begetting or proceeding being nothing at all like proceeding. God teaches us to call him father, not because he is identical to human fathers, but rather because that language communicated something important to us. And in the same way, the language with which God reveals himself in which the historic church has confessed does not give us a frozen infinite iceberg 
uh, ad intra. Oh yeah, he's trying to he tries to qualify what he means by um, not mapping to the physical world, but then proceeds to utilize physical understandings um, and map them back to God at intra. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, Andrew, if you want to start with this section, yeah, yeah. The first thing I wanted to uh, go through was uh, that one statement there: "God is love, and love is not <laughs> mobile." Like. You know, so Doug is a—he's is, a staunch political conservative, but to me, this sounds surprisingly like liberal sloganeering. You know, like <laughs> love is love, love wins, and therefore this or that. Like, no, mm. like it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's equally vacuous, right? Like, we shouldn't be using these kinds of slogans to make an argument, because um, our because God is love, but His love is not like our love in any of its weaknesses. It's a great weakness of our love and our strength that it's in flux, it's conditional, it must move and be moved to express itself. But God, who is love, whose love is nothing else than his very immutable being, which he simply and absolutely is. He is sovereign, he's enthroned, his love is enthroned, steadfast and fixed, and he loves his people with a grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, 2 Timothy 1.9. It's present and lavished upon us before we were even born or have done anything good and bad. He chose Jacob over Esau before they were born or had done anything bad. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans chapter 9. Uh, and indeed, this love and all of his actions to accomplish this purpose were performed from the divine point of view before the world began. His will and acts and presence being eternally performed outside of time so that he can truly say that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Because from the foundation of the world, he was already present in his power with the lamb. He would come 4,000 years later, slaying him for his elect. Sovereign love does not itself move, but with an eternal enthroned action creates and orders all things in order to bend the objects of his love towards him manifesting himself for them and satisfying the enmity that existed uh, between them in the person of his son being made flesh for them to see and believe all while remaining the unchangeable i am in his eternal godhead so none of his change none of his acts of love require any change in his part he remains sovereign he remains enthroned uh, that's the kind of love that god has it's not it has none of our weaknesses, but it's perfectly glorious. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the second, I, I wanted to specifically look at the uh, part where he talks about the father sending the son into the world and that sending is not immobile because this isn't uh, a new issue. This is something that Christians have, have dealt with for a very long time now. Um, and as he goes on to say, the language we use about God, we, we don't use it in the same way uh, that we use it in man. This is what we call analogies, analogical predication. We had a whole episode about this called uh, Thomas and Analogy, I believe, uh, or Analogy and Aquinas. And um, so un unfortunately, while Doug is right in insisting that this kind of language means something and that we also shouldn't map things of the temporal world into the eternal world, uh, the aspects of sending that he appears to want to map onto the divine are precisely those elements that are exclusively temporal, such as movement and time, without which movement is impossible, and thus contradicts the things that are very plainly revealed in Scripture to be attribute of God, namely his timelessness and omnipresence, which we defended that in our episode on the incarnation and, and Christology. Uh, God is eternal and and 
the things that he wants to to import from our types of sending are the very things that would end up contradicting those biblical doctrines. Um, but many centuries before Thomas was born, uh, Christians recognized that sending of the sun involves no change motion or time. And I want to look at Augustine for this here. Uh, so in his work on the Trinity, uh, this is book two, chapter five, he, he says the following. Quote, what then is that which the same evangelist says concerning him? He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not, and then adds, he came unto his own. Certainly he was sent there, whether he came, but if he was sent into the world because he came forth from the Father, then he both came into the world and was in the world. He was sent, therefore, there where he already was. For consider that too, which is written in the prophet, that God said, Do not I fill heaven and earth? And then Augustine goes on to say later, It is fitly said that he who appeared in the flesh was sent, and that he who did not appear in it sent him. Because those things which are transacted outwardly before the bodily eyes have their existence from the inward structure of the spiritual nature, and on that account are fitly said to be sent. Further, that, from, that form of man which he took in the person of the Son, not also of the Father, on which account the invisible Father, together with the Son, who with the Father is invisible, is said to have sent the same Son by making him visible. But if he became visible in such way as to cease to be invisible with the Father, that is, if the substance of the invisible world, the invisible word, excuse me, were turned by a change and transition into a visible creature, then the Son would be so understood to be sent by the Father that he would be found to be only sent, not also with the Father sending. But since he took he, he so took the form of a servant as that the unchangeable form of God remained, it is clear that that which became apparent in the Son was done by the Father and the Son not being apparent. That is, that by the invisible Father with the invisible Son, the same Son himself was sent so as to be visible, end quote. So let me break that down a little bit. What he's saying here is that the Son eternally as God was already present in the places where he, which he was sent. So there's no motion where he moved from one place to another because he fills heaven and earth. So his, his sending really amounts to becoming visible in a new way that he was not visible uh, before. You know, so in other words, the sending is purely in his humanity uh, and accomplishing the mission of the father and his being sent actually involved both not only the father, but also uh, himself and his deity as well, because these outward actions of God are inseparable. Um, Augustine very strongly believes and defends the doctrine of inseparable uh, operations. I know that's not our topic today, but but some people also try to make that sound like that's like a Thomistic thing or something. No, Augustine goes into great depth about that in other places in that work. Um, but anyways, the point of all this, should, our conclusion from all this should be that Augustine, who, who never heard of Thomism in his life, this is almost a thousand years before, understood that the sending of the sun is not about any movement in the sun's deity from one place to another, but by in being in the world according to his human nature. Thus, he is not sent to a new place, but he appears in a place in a new manner and form on behalf of the one who sent him. And this mission aspect and newness of manner of presence is why it's rightly called ascending. That's where the parallel and the analogy comes from. It's because of uh, what we call the analogy of proportion, um, much in the same way, um, you know, both us seeing something outwardly and seeing things with our eyes are both sometimes called seeing, like like oh my mind saw this truth or or that. There's no there's no uh, common um, 
uh, function of, of like we have in our eyes and our brains, uh, the similarity is proportion of an outsider looking in and seeing how it functions. So here too, you have this, this similar function of the son coming in on behalf of the father, but we should not apply the very things that scripture denies to exist in the deity in order to explain this, namely movement and locomotion are new presence when God, in fact, uh, is the fullness of being. Now, that's very helpful. Um, yeah, it, when you're talking about sending, that is a difficult topic because we have to think backwards, essentially. We have to unthink those terms outside of our understanding. But if you do think about it in the economy as it relates to Christ's human nature, then it does make sense in that respect. Yeah, whatever we say, we cannot attribute motion to God as it relates to sending or subordination either. Um, that's another issue as it relates to sending that comes up in our day surrounding that. Absolutely. And scripture never does that itself. This is purely people reading these terms and thinking, oh, well, that aspect of human sending, right. of humanly sending, has to be part of the, the parallel of sending. Even though they acknowledge, like Doug Wilson here acknowledges, yeah, not everything in our sending is being or begetting or whatever is important back to God. It's like this arbitrary, insistent. Well, when I think of sending, I think of motion. Therefore, that has to be one of the aspects. That's not that's not a sufficient argument. Your 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 instinct, your gut feeling about what sending should include is not an argument. It's not an argument from scripture, just because that's your own personal intuition. You have to read scripture and scripture, and in order to determine what is meant by it, you have to compare it with other things the scripture plainly says and implies about the nature of God. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, and then Wilson goes on to talk about Nicaea. Um, this, I think, <laughs> I think this section of the article irritated me the most. Um, I'm currently studying for, uh, I'm going to be teaching in our church in our Sunday school class, what we call core studies now, um, on the Arian controversy. And as I'm studying, you know, we were doing this preparation as I'm doing preparation for my lesson. And it was just really frustrating to see like how historically void these statements were as it relates to Nicaea. Um, just using this terminology of the creeds or the Nicaea uses verbs. So that implies movement in God. It, this overly simplistic, silly um, understanding of the real issues that were going on. The issue of Nicaea was precisely, um, was Jesus creature or was Jesus co-eternal with the father? That was the issue. And, and if he is co-eternal with the father, he can't change. He is immutable. He is uh, timeless. He has all the attributes that the Father does in his essence, um, and is therefore th these creaturely qualities are not um, attributed to him. And this is what we see very clearly um, Athanasius and, you know, these anti-Arian uh, understandings pushing against Arius and saying, look, if you're saying that Jesus is a creature and not co-eternal with the Father, that implies that he can change. That implies that he is going to be like us. And so they saw this as, as very important. So th this idea that verbs somehow used in the creeds or used in the Nicene controversy somehow constitutes proof that they taught movement in God is, is utterly devoid of, of any historical understanding of what was um, of what was happening here. 
Yeah, and um, especially vain when we've already read from Athanasius explicitly denying motion and God. The chief, yeah. So one, son, we've already seen the chief theologian of Nicaea say, yeah, there's no motion of God. It's really indefensible to use the fact that Nicaea uses verbs to say, oh, really, they <laughs> teach against uh, their not being motion and God. It's it's really, yeah. Yeah, this is... This goes back to the whole thing. Like at some point, you need to to actually show us quotations of them yeah. directly defending your your view. Um, it's like, oh well, they they used verbs, therefore they must have believed this. That's not that's not. We good use enough. verbs all the time, and you wouldn't say that means we believe in mobility in God. Exactly. Right. We literally use verbs talking about God all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a it's such a pathetic argument. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, you know, I'll I'll quote from Athanasius. It says, for this reason, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God came into our realm, not that he was previously distant, for no part of creation is left deprived of him. For remaining with his own father, he has filled all things everywhere. But he has come condescending in his benevolence and manifestation to us. So uh, Athanasius understands Christ in his divine nature to be omnipresent, filling everything everywhere he's not being sent in his divine nature he's already here in his divine nature he's omnipresent Amen. he fills all things so there's no need for him to um, go from heaven you know starting up here at a point and then moving over here in a point he already fills every place in his divine nature there's nothing that he has to gain in doing that uh, by moving and and then he uses these terms of he's immaterial is incorruptible he's unchangeable all of those things that motion implies um, so it, it's, it's very interesting to just see. And then you see Basil of Caesarea. I'm kind of getting to the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, he says, and this is quoted from John Bear's book says a begetting worthy of God, according to Basil is without passion, without division, without separation and non-temporal. The son's begetting therefore refers not so much to a discrete divine act as to the particular relationship in which the son stands to the father, one of uh, derivation and identity of being. Uh, Gregory is Neziantis. He came right after Basil. He talks about this again, quoted from Bear. For this reason, from the beginning, singularity is moved to duality and rests at Trinity. And this is for us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first is begetter and originator. I mean, impassably, timelessly, and incorporeally. And of the others, one is begotten and the other is emanation. I know not how one could express this in terms altogether removed from uh, things visible. And then finally, Gregory of Nyssa, again, it's quoted from Bear. Uh, he says, it is not because God appeared in the flesh that the flesh remains, but because the human is mutable and the divine is immutable. The divine is unmoved to change, being altered neither to the better nor to the worse, for it does not admit of the worse, and there is nothing better. But the human nature in Christ possesses the possibility of change. For the better, being transformed from corruptible to incorruptible, from perishable to imperishable, from short-lived to eternal, from corporeal and possessed of form perceived by the senses to incorporeal and formless. So this and the Cappadocian fathers were the ones who were expounding upon the theology at Nicaea with Athanasius being uh, the front runner there. So it's very clear that this this concept of, you know, they, they weren't using verbs to show any real change or movement in God. They were using these terminologies because this is how we speak as human beings. We can't speak in any other way, but yeah. by the implications of that were not movement, um, as very clearly shown from these Cappadocian father quotations.
Um, so it's just this really annoyed me when I when I read his uh, his understanding. And I, again, I didn't have to go very far like you did, Andrew. You didn't. I didn't have to go very far to find this stuff. It's it's readily available um, and they explicitly deal with the issue. We're not having to infer anything from uh, from certain places. We're able to see these issues directly um, dealt with head on and see implications of immobility or uh, immutability as taught by um, the fathers and as they're pulling these things from scripture and combating very serious heresies as seen with the Arians in particular. Anything to add? Nothing right. here. I'm good on this All point. Right. All right. Ninth, if it is true that all that is in God is God, and we are understanding it according to a strict to uh, Thomas calculus, then what? Then that means that God's decision to create the world was necessary and not contingent. This actually represents the heart of the trouble, and I am starting to wonder why I put it ninth. It is proper to say of God's attributes that all that is in God is God. His justice is his love, which is his mercy, which is his majesty, and so on. And when all of them are considered together, we may call that, call that his holiness. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. But it is not proper to apply this to all God's acts and operations. If all that God does is God, then his creation of the world is God. And that means that, that creation exists necessarily. God has to be whatever he is in his essence. We do not rob him of his free will if we say that God exists necessarily or that it would be inconceivable to remove his omnipotence, for example. But if God's decision to create the world the way he did is God, then that does rob God of his free will. It is better to say that God created me with ten fingers and that he could have done otherwise. Um, so, you know, we're seeing... This gets into a pretty complicated discussion. We'll try to hit this kind of on the surface level because we could do a whole episode dedicated to this topic. But talking about the necessity of creation and God's uh, freedom. Um, so the fundamental aspect here, we have to understand creation is necessary in some sense. It's necessary by virtue of um, God's immutable decree, um, which does bring these things into existence. God's will is not distinct from his essence. It is his essence. God is simply willing. That's uh, how he exists in this sense. Um, but both the Westminster Confession of Faith, which Wilson claims to hold to, and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith uh, do confess the immutability of God's decree. In our confession, you can see this in chapter 3, paragraph 1. It says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Um, so, we would say that creation is necessary only in that sense. Um, we would say it is not ontologically necessary, meaning that I don't exist, Sean doesn't exist, Andrew doesn't exist by virtue of ourselves. We don't bring ourselves into existence. We don't keep ourselves in existence. We are wholly dependent upon God's act of uh, keeping the world moving, keeping the laws of physics moving, etc., um, and we see this very clearly in Acts 17, 28. In him we live and move and have our being. Um, so we don't exist in and of ourselves. And so in a sense, theoretically, we could not be as well because we do not exist necessarily of ourselves. We exist contingent upon the uh, the immutable will of God. Um, so then the question becomes, what is freedom of the will? And that seems as it relates to God. And that seems to be where uh, Wilson also falls into kind of error. He seems to understand God's free will in a sense of like God is choosing 
he has the ability to choose a bunch of different choices that are placed in front of him um, instead of what we really should see where God is independent of anything outside of himself. And that's where the true freedom is. Um, it's not related into being able to pick choices that are outside of himself. And if that's the case, then that really makes God's uh, will weak because it's dependent upon something else outside of itself in order to actualize. He has to choose a choice that already exists um, before he can make the choice to actualize something. So that's a problem. Um, and you can find this under James Dolezal talks about this in his book, uh, God Without Parts, which is his doctoral thesis. And he cites Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, and he goes to Herman Bavink, who's a more contemporary um, reformed uh, Presbyterian in this area. Um, but yeah, do you guys have anything to add to that, yeah. Andrew? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I think there's some confusion on Doug's part here. So while it's definitely true that uh, all that God does is God in the sense that his will is um, he is his own will. He is his own power. He is on his he's his own justice and the like. It's important to recognize, too, that the acts of creation are not additional acts on top of his own self act, his his own act of aseity. Uh, he's he already has the fullness of all being in himself, and when he creates outside of himself, it it doesn't require any additional action because if his own self act is infinite and it can it contains all uh, the power behind all isness not not that the things that God creates. Let me let me make this distinction real quick here because this is it gets us in a thorny issue. Um, God virtually prepossesses all things. That's the classical language. I talked about this a little bit in our episode on Christology. Um, but that is not to say, and I just want to make this absolutely clear, just in case anybody misunderstands this. That's not to say that the that things pre-exist in God in the in the, some pantheistic Correct. sense yes. where like, no, there's no there's no commonality, like there's a complete utter otherness between god's being and and creatures right there's there's a complete otherness to and the reason we know that is not only because of course god says it but because there's no parts in god so you can't share a part of god in common with him without sharing the entirety of god right um so so we're definitely not saying any of that but it is true that in him we live and move and have our being in other words the power behind all of our isness is prepossessed by god in other words he's the sufficient cause for all the effects that he makes so there's there's nothing that creatures have to add to him because all the power behind all of their isness all the power behind all their beings being pre-exists in god and is pre-possessed by him so no additional exertions are needed uh for god to be god and then create on top of that so god is not the sum of his act of aseity and the acts of creation. The reason why I'm bringing all this up is because um, it this this strips away this idea that that God's nature demands the creation of the specific things that that are here. Um, is creation is necessary by supposition, as Aquinas would say, but not absolutely necessary. In other mm -hmm. words, since God's will is immutable and conducted from all eternity. The things that exist are necessary because of that, but uh, it but it wasn't any additional act of being upon, on the part of God to create those things. In other words, if if He hadn't 
uh, decreed to create all things, he would have been the same God because his the um, the sum of his wisdom, power, knowledge, and everything would have been precisely the same, infinite, if he didn't create anything. Because it's it's the like the old question like is, is infinity plus three bigger than infinity? No, it's not. Infinity plus three is still infinity, or infinity minus three is still infinity. It it goes to that kind of uh, logical dimension there. Why we can say truly that God is free and His nature doesn't necessitate uh, creation of things. Um, and once you understand that, then you then you understand that this does not rob God's freedom. God didn't have to make us. He didn't have to redeem us in His Son. This is purely His own grace. He freely did this, as our confession said. He freely uh, decrees all things, uh, and yet He does so immutably. immutably. So by supposition, it's necessary because he's done it, but it wasn't necessary on account of his being in order to be who he is. Yep. And, and that's, like we said, that's a topic you could get into in a whole episode. I mean, oh, that, yeah, it's yeah. a very complex and there's different schools of thought around it, too. Not all people who confess divine simplicity hold to the same view on that. Um, it, it's It's been something that uh, is, I think, more so in the more contemporary era that has been struggled with. But, uh, you know, this was discussed, like I mentioned, with Charnock, you had Hervin Bavink much later, all talking about these different issues and trying to reconcile divine simplicity with um, divine freedom. All right, we're almost done here. Tenth, uh, if ever there were such a thing as medieval Roman, as a medieval Roman Catholic, Thomas would be your man. He was a Dominican, for example, an order established for the purpose of suppressing the Waldensian proto-Protestant movement and those and whose methods included savage persecution in which Thomas defended. This kind of thing should at least give classical Protestants some pause. There are all sorts of reasons for supposing that one's general worldview and outlook might easily seep, seep into your theology proper. Much of the theological impetus of the Reformation consisted of a revolt against the barking of the schoolmen, as Calvin might put it, of whom Calvin, of whom Aquinas was King Daddy, and so it is that I begin to suspect something really odd is afoot when men want to charitably read Aquinas through the, a Protestant lens, and who at the same time look at me with grave concern and suspicion. I, I who have had the Westminster Confession woven into a scarf in the original Aramaic, which I have wrapped around my neck three times and which I wear all the time. Um, so I think this is more. You know historical illiteracy and i think just another bad argument well, yeah go ahead Sean. yeah I, 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 i'd like to know where he draws his lines because a lot of what was just said could apply to augustine a lot of what was just said could right. apply to luther because augustine um basically came to the conclusion that um going to the highways and byways and compel them to come in meant the church had the right essentially to tell the state to bring people into the church right and that's where you eventually that doctrine forms into um uh such a way that uh, the inquisition uh, comes about um so you could very well say that oh well you know augustine is at least partially responsible for the persecution of the waldensians so therefore uh should we really be looking at him at the doctrine of god luther i know that wilson isn't a baptist but luther um uh, was okay with the persecution of Anabaptists. Um, it, the where, Presbyterians where... persecuted Baptists. Should we just stop mm -hmm. using the Westminster Confession or Westminster Vines because they yeah. persecuted us? No. 
Yeah, like at a certain point, like where is the line? Because he, right. he's, he's he's saying, well, we we shouldn't want to. Uh, something's odd when you want to read these people charitably. I like, well, I don't. I do want to read them charitably. If they're right on something, I don't want to say, well, you know, they're bad people, so we're we're done with them. You know. And I'd um, like to see where you know where did guys like john owen fall off the rails and become a roman catholic because they like to utilize he liked to utilize aristotelian concepts mm -hmm. and and also was familiar with aguinas um this is what the socinians did they rejected they said you know what we're not going to use anything outside of scripture we don't like philosophy we don't like schoolmen or tradition we're just going to reject that and they ended up becoming heretical on uh, a number of key issues the incarnation the trinity and then obviously their idea of scripture was was warped. Um, and Carl Truman talks about this uh, in his book, The Claims of Truth, on page 29. I want to read this real quick. He says, quote, in light of Socinian claims to reject a trinity, etc., on the basis of sola scriptura, the creeds are useful as a practical test of orthodoxy. It is quite clear from this that Owen, this is John Owen, was not so naive as to hold to the view that theology as a discipline could be pursued simply in terms of the reader with an empty mind engaging with the bare text of scripture and thus somehow automatically imbibing pure doctrine. That was the professed approach of the Socinians and the results were neither Catholic nor Orthodox. The creeds act as heuristic devices that facilitate the unlocking of scripture's teaching. The result is that Owen's theology, far from being a radical break from the earlier tradition, is rather a critical appropriation of that tradition for contemporary needs. And I would like to see where Owen felt, again, fell off the rails and, and, had all these issues with his theology proper that seeped in because he utilized sources okay. that were not necessarily Protestant. And I mean, you could look at our own confession, the Westminster divines who utilized this tradition and still uh, were more Orthodox than those who rejected it. Um, so this is another historically void um, set of assertions that we find here. And the whole thing's entirely wrong headed because Thomas's character isn't relevant if it's not his doctrines. Right. <laughs> His characters and what he did is irrelevant if he's just borrowing from men before him who didn't right. do those things, at least not all of them. So what's what's the argument there? It's only an argument if you if you've embraced the historical fiction that Thomas invented them. Which right. Already thoroughly disproved at this. Point. Oh, yeah. Not only from my quotes, <laughs> but what you've quoted from Gregory as well, Daniel. Um, it, there's there's no defense for this sort of thing yep all right and we'll yeah. finish out with this oh i'm sorry sean go ahead oh i was just i was just gonna go back to the whole um uh where was it um do uh there's uh reasons for supposing that one's general worldview and outlook might easily seep into your theology proper um i also wanted to bring up the example of uh baptismal regeneration between luther and augustine because obviously we're mm. uh uh, we as reformed people uh, would not we would not agree with that but are we then therefore going to say oh well that's part of his general worldview it's seeped into his theology proper it's seeped into his uh, doctrine of justification by faith because you could uh, you could very well argue with luther that it has influenced his doctrine of justification by faith but that doesn't mean i'm about to stop quoting luther because luther is still good where luther is still good so uh, again, it's just it's where where exactly are you drawing this line? Is it just because well Thomas Aquinas is is purely a Roman Catholic and therefore bad, 
Um, is it because he's unsaved and therefore bad? Whereas we're okay with Augustine and, and Luther because we, we think they're saved. Like, I mean, I, I didn't get a sense of where, where is this line? And if you don't draw that line, it, it just looks like you're, you're playing favorites at a certain point. And should we get rid of Wilson because he believes that Roman Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ by virtue of their Trinitarian baptism? Yeah. You know, it, the, when the shoe's on the other foot, you know, things start, uh, things start to get interesting. Um, and then finally, 11th, near the end of his life, Thomas Aquinas had a mystical experience that caused him to stop writing. Every, uh, he quotes Aquinas here, everything that I have written seems straw in comparison with what I have seen. May it not be too much to ask that God gives us, give us the grace to see something similar, Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, and to come to a similar conclusion. Would Wilson say that everything Aquinas ever wrote was straw? I don't think so, because Aquinas shares a lot of orthodox characteristics right. with but us. But it seems like he's throwing him out with that yeah. statement. It's kind of hard to... Tertullian, at the end of his life, uh, converted to Montanism, which Montanism is, is definitely heretical, at least in some sense, at least in the full-blown version. I don't know if he adopted every single Montanist belief or not, but yeah, he, does that he mean... He probably didn't do all of them, but he, mm. he embraced some of them. But anyways, yeah. Yeah, so does that mean I'm now forbidden from ever quoting from Tertullian again? Uh, especially if it's just to say, like, oh, this is in the historical stream Christian thought? Of course of course not. Um, I don't know what happened with uh, Aquinas there. I hope it was a revelation to him that his soteriology was wrong. Um, I hope so. I don't know that yeah. for sure, but uh, that would yeah. be what I hope. But um, when he says everything I've done is straw, I, I don't actually know precisely what he's referring to there um and there's certainly stuff that both wilson and i would agree aquinas did that was not straw yeah yep. and 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 i'd be leery about recommending what happened to aquinas as something to be imitated by people who come after him it sounds almost charismatic to me you know like this this mm. mystical vision and the like and now i'm gonna throw out all the doctrine i believed before uh, when when Luther said that an apparition of Christ came to him, he threw a, a blot of ink at him because he says, he says, what are you doing down here? You're in heaven. You know, <laughs> he's like, get out of here, demon. You're not Jesus Christ. <laughs> so that should be that should be the uh, response of, of believers for any mystical apparitions like that, if that's indeed what it was. All right. Well, we made it through the article. Hopefully, uh, thanks for bearing with us, everyone. It, it's a it's a long episode, um, but I think it it hopefully is beneficial. We've gone into the primary, secondary source materials, and I think demonstrated flaws in this article. Um, but we thank you for joining us today. Um, hope everyone has a great Thanksgiving, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be back soon. Thank you. Thank you.